Hi, this is Jonathan Keller. And this is John Girardi. Happy to be back with you on Life, Family, Liberty, the main podcast for California Family Council. You say that as if we have more than one podcast, Jonathan, and we don't. We don't. We only have this one. This is the singular podcast, in fact, for California Family Council, although... Maybe I feel that way because we've been doing so much guest hosting on the radio lately. Yeah, we, we've we've been doing a lot uh, on uh, AM 1680, The Answer, here in Fresno. Our our friend uh, Jim Franklin, who uh, is a, one of the part owners of the radio station and has a one-hour morning talk show on the station, has been out of town for a while. So we've been filling in and... Uh, trying unsuccessfully to burn down the whole station and you know, completely ruin his program. I, I'm no attorney, but is that a threat of arson or are we in the clear? No, 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 because we're so bad at it. Oh, okay. It might not actually constitute attempt. We were acquitted uh, on the basis of ineptitude. <laughs> you guys are... That, that's a great Italian insult that my grandfather <laughs> taught me. He's he's so dumb, he couldn't even get arrested. <laughs> There you go. There we go. Well, unfortunately for conservatives, that seems to be, uh, if, if things continue along the trend that they're going, uh, that will not be the case. And uh, especially if you have public school officials that uh, disagree, as an example, with the uh, the current executive order issued by the Obama administration. Yeah. So today, and thanks for the little lead in there, Jonathan. Today, we wanted to talk um, a little bit about last Friday's decision by the Obama administration uh, their letter requiring all school districts, public school districts throughout the country, to open up their bathrooms to students on the basis of their perceived gender identity, not on the basis of their actual physical, biological sex. So we're going to talk about that a little bit and also about the Supreme Court decision that was issued yesterday, May 16th, relating to the Obamacare contraception mandate for religious nonprofit organizations. So why don't we start actually with the Supreme Court decision, because that's the most recent thing. And for those of you who don't know the news, yesterday, Monday, May 16th, the Supreme Court issued a decision in the Zubik v. Burwell case. Now, I don't actually know who Zubik or Burwell are, but... Burwell, I will say, Sylvia Burwell, I do know that. She is the uh, current Secretary of Health and Human Services. Ah, She okay. succeeded the uh, infamous Kathleen, Kathleen Sebelius. Oh, man, the, the most pleasant woman in Washington. Oh, yeah. Anyway, this case, basically, the plaintiffs in this case, the people suing the government in this case, were a bunch of religious nonprofit organizations, uh, including some religious colleges, some I think some Catholic archdi- some Catholic dioceses were involved, and um, notably, one of the most notable plaintiffs was a an order of Catholic nuns called the Little Sisters of the Poor, who I think are based their U- U.S. headquarters I think is in St. Louis, and and what they do is they help serve uh, poor elderly people. So you know, real, real political radicals. Yeah, that's uh, right. Yeah, so. Essentially, they were suing the government because the Obamacare uh, HHS uh, contraception mandate was requiring all of these different kinds of organizations to provide health care coverage for contraception and abortifacient contraceptives, like the morning after pill and I guess the week after pill, which are yeah. these are essentially drugs that you take to abort a conceived human life. Yeah, early. And, and usually those work, if I'm remembering right, I think... For example, RU486 usually 
has to be done within the first, I think, four to six weeks. Yeah, something like that. A lot of people don't know, but you can't actually perform a surgical abortion before, I think six weeks is usually about the very earliest, but it's usually more like eight to 10 weeks. Okay, yeah. So the Obamacare uh, HHS mandate, I don't, it did not require actual churches to cover this. There was an exception for actual churches, but not for religious nonprofits that aren't explicitly themselves churches. So religious colleges, orders of nuns, uh, were deemed not religious enough by the Obama administration uh, to merit an exemption or an exception uh, from this law. So these entities said, hey, this is a substantial burden on our right to free exercise of religion because we have to do this thing that our religious, our, our sincerely held religious beliefs tell us is morally evil. So they sued the Obama administration under the First Amendment and under the Religious Freedom Restoration Act. And uh, the decision got appealed all the way up to the Supreme Court. And what the Supreme Court essentially said was, look, it appears that you two have a compromised position whereby the federal government can provide these contraception, these contraceptives to and, and abortifacients to people who request them and also, you religious nonprofits don't have to participate in that at all. You don't have to do anything. That seems shockingly reasonable. Wow. And it seems like already the thing that almost every state government that provides uh, these kinds of services, uh, that's what they they already do. And all, there are all kinds of laws at the state level that provide these sorts of exceptions for religious nonprofits such that they don't have to burden their consciences. So the Supreme Court said, it looks like you guys have a compromise that you're going to work out. So we're not going to issue an actual decision on it. Work out the compromise. And um, that appears to be what's going to happen. So yep. it's it's a real... I, I, I'm very excited and happy about it that our side, if you will, was able to pull out a victory given that, you know, the makeup of the Supreme Court now, that it's no longer a kind of five to four majority uh, with Scalia, a- a- after yeah. since Antonin Scalia passed away, now it's kind of like a four-four tie, depending on you know what side of the bed Anthony Kennedy wakes up on. And uh, it's really it's really horrifying. I-, I did see several things talk about this in relation to this case and several other cases. Mm-hmm. Say what you will about the current um, shenanigans happening with the presidential race, right? Uh, and we will not talk about that since we are a five hundred one c three nonprofit, but. Put put aside the entire presidential race. How tragic is it that in our current constitutional republic, the death of one man, yeah, it has created such shockwaves throughout the entire yeah. order. And, and yeah, and and that's the thing. I mean, it, had he not died, I I wouldn't be surprised if if maybe an actual decision would have the yeah. court had decided to make an actual decision on this case i don't know maybe maybe the government would have been more willing to settle or change their views earlier if if scalia they was may have, may have had to they yeah. may, may not have faced an option of changing their views or not yeah so yeah so. just correct me if i'm wrong but it kind of seems that this entire compromise kind of smacks of anthony kennedy not wanting to have to become the fifth vote in a 5-3 split. Maybe. It seems like it. Well, I mean, and in fairness, I mean, maybe the court was uncomfortable enough about it and and uncomfortable enough about their, you know, current makeup. I mean, it's a 4-4 split. We don't know if the president is going to be Hillary or Bernie or Donald Trump. We don't know what kinds of Supreme Court justices 
uh, either of those three, well, we know what kinds of Supreme Court justices Hillary and Bernie would appoint, probably. Yes. Uh, I, I think, uh, all right, anyway. <laughs> I can only imagine the type of people Bernie Sanders would appoint. <laughs> All right, Very Mr. loud judges. All right. Mr. Snip Snip is coming in right here. Anyway, uh, maybe we'll leave that in. That's funny. Anyway, so we don't know what the makeup of the Supreme Court is going to be. Maybe the court doesn't want to issue a decision on a very controversial topic like this uh, without good reason. So this this was one interesting point from the case. So the, the standard by which this case was going to be decided was according to the Religious Freedom Restoration Act. Now, what is that law? The Religious Freedom Restoration Act was passed in 1993 by Bill Clinton and an almost unanimous Congress. And it, was it actually unanimous? It was, it was very close. It was to very unanimous. close. I think the Senate was 97 to 0. 97 to 0. Okay. So essentially what the Religious Freedom Restoration Act does is it kind of attempts to beef up the protections for free exercise of religion that are already present in the First Amendment. So it's, it kind of takes the First Amendment and makes it like a super First Amendment. So according to the Religious Freedom Restoration Act, if the government is, has passed a law that infringes upon your ability to exercise or live out your religion, and it's, it is your sincerely a sincerely held religious belief, the government has to show... First of all, that what they're trying to do is a compelling state interest, and they have to show that the way that they're trying to accomplish that, that compelling interest is the most narrowly tailored way possible of accomplishing it. And that's in, in the legal term for this is strict scrutiny. So it applies the standard of, quote, strict scrutiny to any act by the government that infringes upon a person's sincerely held religious beliefs and their attempt to live out those sincerely held religious beliefs. So so there are sort of two parts to that. There's a compelling government interest and the most narrowly tailored means possible of attaining that interest. And I, the fact that the government was offering a compromise, I think indicates both that it wasn't a really compelling state interest and that the initial mechanism they put in place wasn't the most narrowly tailored means possible of attaining that goal. Absolutely. Well, and, and I think we, we talked about this on our radio program this morning, but the fact that there are so many exceptions, so many broad right. exceptions, and not just for re- religious institutions. But there uh, are some, like, for-profit businesses that yeah. are exempt from it, right? And I think some for-profit businesses, some unions, I think, yeah. uh, different groups that are exempt from having to comply with this or other parts of the mandate. Right. And the idea that you would require, you would force these, in this case, nuns, the little sisters of the poor, to have to... <laughs> violate their consciences in this way is is really just frankly yeah, kind so of like despicable. so you say a church doesn't have to do this but but an order of nuns whom we are deeming less religious somehow yeah. <laughs> than a church uh they have to pay for it it, it was the whole thing was just so silly uh, so i have clearly, to i have to yeah. point out one thing on that though because the the name of the case we brought this up before it's zubik v burwell okay. which as you said the entire name of the case sounds like something that if you are Joe Q public, like, Joe, Joe Q voter, what you might are you go, talking about? Uh, I don't understand these words. This sounds very weird and nebulous. I don't understand yeah. it. I'm going to ignore it. Mm-hmm. Well, again, 
one of the main plaintiffs, the people who brought this to begin with, the, I, I believe they were actually the first plaintiffs who initiated the lawsuit before it was consolidated with these religious colleges and universities. The original plaintiffs were the Little Sisters of the Poor, like you mentioned. Right. Uh, but Mona Sharon, writing for National Review, had this great piece today, very, very short. But she says, uh, the title of the piece is, You Can't Make Me Say It, Quoth WAPO, or the Washington Post. Yeah. So real quick, this is what she says. She says, what's in a name? The top story in the print version of today's Washington Post carries this headline, Justices Return Contraceptive Case to Lower Courts. In the six paragraphs explaining the decision on the front page, the plaintiff's name goes unmentioned. When you flip to the jump, you've got to read down another five paragraphs to learn that this case was actually brought by the Little Sisters of the Poor. And she basically points out, she says that this entire, the name of the case is perfectly pitched to make progressives squirm because you mm-hmm. d- you don't want to have, you especially don't want in the election year. The poor to be, I got to say, finding the Little Sisters <laughs> and making them the lead plaintiffs for yep. this case was brilliant. I mean, you can't find a more sympathetic plaintiff. This, Ab- is, this, absolutely. Is, my, this is my lawyer, lawyer. I'm going to sue somebody brain talking. Well, and they make the point in the book. It, it's kind of like the way the left tries whenever possible to avoid, you know, saying partial birth abortion, for example. Sure. Uh, because they don't want to talk about the reality of what's happening. <laughs> yeah, they don't want a name for it that, like, accurately describes what is yeah. happening. Like, a baby is partially born yeah. and then is aborted. Yeah. And if you were in Supreme Court jurisprudence also when you're consolidating the case, if you're a clerk or if you're— I don't know who decides what the actual final consolidated name for the case yeah, is. Yeah, I'm, I'm not exactly— exactly sure how that works. But, but I just have to guess, if, yeah. if if you were a liberal and you had the option of naming the case... Little it, Sisters of the Poor versus Burwell or Zubik. <laughs> Whoever Zubik is. If you, have to, if you have to reference this type of a case, uh, you know, like Planned Parenthood v. Casey. Well, they don't call it the Planned Parenthood decision. They call it the Casey decision. Yeah. You know, uh, it's, it's just interesting to me to see how even on the, the little things, work. these yeah. names are used. I mean, e- even the terminology itself, the way that it's consolidated, is in itself part of the culture war in this yeah. regard. Yeah. So, so yeah. Uh, so by having all these exemptions, they demonstrated that this wasn't a really compelling governmental interest. And the fact that they were offering a compromise. So essentially what the Little Sisters of the Poor and all these groups were saying was, you know, we don't want to do anything that initiates the process of one of our employees getting these drugs because we think these drugs are evil and immoral and involve you either in contraception, which which a lot of Catholics think is immoral, or uh, abortion, which is murder that <laughs> that all these plaintiffs agreed agreed about. Essentially, what the federal government seems now to be offering is, well, we're going to have some process in place where people can get these drugs, but these religious nonprofits don't do anything in, in the process of these people getting those drugs. And that's sort of all they were requesting was, you know, look, we think these things are immoral, and you know what, we, we don't think the government should be paying for them or providing them, but all we're asking, at the very least, is that if you're going to pay for these things and provide them, don't make us be involved with it. Don't impose penalties on us if we don't sign off on a form uh, allowing one of our employees to get an abortion. Like, yeah. we're, we're not going to do that because that's, you know, people will say, oh, you're just signing a form. But it's like, no, that's that's mater- that's genuine material and, and some would argue formal cooperation in yeah. something that's a moral evil. I mean, that's, this isn't like some, you know, hyper-scrupulous, like, 
it's, uh, it's attitude. It's really kind of ridiculous when you think about it to think that the government just expects that, oh, well, look, we're not saying that anything having to do with you signing the form involves you in the way of purchasing contraception for your employees. Well, okay, then we won't sign it because it doesn't have any effect. No, well, but you no, have to. But you have to sign it because, so that, because they need to get their contraception. <laughs> we need you to sign it in order for them to get the contraception. <laughs> Can't you just give it to them? No, you got to sign this form. I don't want to sign the form. You got to sign the form. That will fine you millions of dollars if you don't sign the form. Oh, and that's well, a, you're a jerk. That, that, that's another thing, by the way, folks. That just uh, and I know this is a little bit of old news because it, remarkably, this case has taken four years to percolate all the way up. It's it, taken four years for the Obama administration finally just to say. Uh, okay. okay, I guess you can. The, we can provide. I guess we are completely able to provide contraception coverage for these people without you needing to, you know, sign the, off on it. And the initial, the initial HHS mandate, the the first iteration of this was in February 2012. Yeah. And the thing that's just remarkable to me is the fact that it's taken them all of this time. And in the meantime, the thing that's crazy is guess what the fine is, Johnny, for not offering health insurance to your employees. I mean, it's... It's, it's a roughly exactly $2,000 a year. If you're a right. corporation and so you're over and a certain some, number... And for some corporations, it's actually cheaper to pay the fine than it is to, oh, yeah. to actually pay for health for insurance. For probably almost every corporation, it's yeah. technically cheaper. Yeah. Now, they do, I think, ramp the penalty up over, um, over a while, but, but still, it's generally cheaper. Here's the crazy thing, though. But for the religious nonprofits... Well, well, no, it's still 2000 a year, but here's the crazy thing. You have two options. You can either pay the fine of 2000 or let's say that you're the, you're the little sisters of the poor, and you say, hey, we're going to provide great health insurance for our employees. For these sweet little ladies, we're going to provide everything. We don't want the government to have to pick up the tab mm-hmm. because you know we want to be responsible. So we're going to pay lots of money. The only thing we object to... Is, is this contraception. Yeah. If you offer a plan that is the best plan on the market, but it doesn't... Cadillac coverage. Cadillac coverage. Rolls-Royce coverage. Rolls-Royce. I mean, <laughs> that doesn't cover contraception. An abortion patient. You don't get fined $2,000 a year. You get fined $100 per employee per day. Woo! That so, is, for you counting, it's a $2,000 fine per employee per year... So if you that's are a thirty-six thousand five hundred dollar fine per year per employee, it's literally eighteen times more expensive. Yeah, it's eighteen hundred percent more expensive to offer everything except contraception than it is to say, "All right, employees, you know, tough beans, you wow. got to go out and get your own coverage on the private market with your own money." It makes you sort of wonder. What's the motive for that? Great. Yeah. It's, it's almost like <laughs> it's almost they were like deliberately they... trying to crush these <laughs> private religious nonprofits. nonprofits or to force them to change their opinions on, yep. on something. So, yeah, Monday was a very good day. It was a very good day for religious liberty. And sort of for the, the scorecard now on Obamacare, on the Obamacare HHS mandate, at least at the Supreme Court level, seems to be that religious nonprofits don't have to provide this if they object. And closely held private businesses don't have to provide this coverage if they object after the Hobby Lobby decision. So, you know, it, we're in a much better place than we were in, in February of 2012. Oh, yeah. Uh, so that is good. Shifting gears just a little bit, just, just for a, a little wrap-up conversation, I think, because uh, we're getting close to the 20-minute mark. So last Friday, as you all know, the Department of Education and the Department of Justice issued 
guidelines, quote, quote, to every public school district in the country, requiring them to open their bathrooms up to students on the basis of, quote, gender identity, not according to sex. We talked about a little bit in our previous podcast and just kind of wanted to clarify that, you know, we've gotten some calls about this, but California has had this be the state law now already for like two years. Unfortunately, and, yeah. And Governor I, Brown signed this in October of 2013. It's almost three years. Right. So, But it's been, it was so under the radar and the California has not wanted you to know about this. Yeah, I, I think because we've gotten like calls and inquiries from people, you know, what can we do to stop this Obama, uh, you know, federal, you know, mandate? And uh, our response has been, well, I mean, I, I guess there would be some things we could do to stop it. But, but first, you would need to like overturn California state law because it's already the law of the land here. And there's so many people, including people who have kids in public schools, uh, I, I think just don't even know that it happened and don't know that it's currently the law. You know, it, it's it's so frustrating to think that, you know, what happens at the state government level, and, and, you know, we try to bring you guys news about this sort of stuff. We've been talking to you about SB 1146, uh, the bad bill that would coerce religious colleges essentially to either accept homosexuality and, and not be able to discriminate on the basis of religion in hiring their professors and key personnel, you know, at a religious college, or else be open to lawsuits. Uh, we have SB 1457, which is the great release time religious education bill that, you know, we hope you all support. There are all these different issues that don't go reported until after they've already been passed by the state assembly or the state senate, and there's and there's no time for you to do anything about it. So, you know, we hope you stay tuned in with us because we're, we're trying to keep you guys informed about state politics, uh, particularly these social issues that we care so much about. Folks, we realize in California it's really an uphill battle, and we're not going to win every single time we go up to the plate. However, it's absolutely vital that we keep fighting, not just for us in California, but because bad ideas that become law here in California eventually filter out to the rest of the nation. I mean, you, you've all right. heard the phrase, you know, as California goes, so goes the nation. And there's no better example of this than with this transgender policy. I mean, this this law that mandates K-12 through schools share bathrooms like this uh, is It started now, in California. It started in California. And it's, it's something that if we don't stand up and fight, if we just lay down and say, why even bother? If there's no pushback at all, they're going to pass stuff that, as hard as it is to believe, is even crazier and more out there than this. Yeah. So, but, but on that note, actually, John, um, you had a really good point, because this goes way beyond just the idea of private stalls in bathrooms. This, right. this goes to a really core concept of privacy, not the nebulous sense of privacy that's, you know, in the... Underlying Roe v. Wade and stuff like that. But real privacy as it relates to the Fourth Amendment and the Eighth Amendment. Right. So this was a point I had brought up on some other forums and totally forgot to bring up in our last podcast. So so I'm an attorney, and when I practiced in Massachusetts, I, I did a lot of work relating to the Fourth Amendment within a correctional environment, like in a jail or a prison, uh, lawsuits relating to what is a reasonable strip search by correctional officials and what isn't. And one of the things that constantly was true about those kinds of searches or or monitoring of inmates by correctional staff within jails and prisons is that correctional staff are never allowed to engage in prolonged, consistent viewing of inmates of the opposite sex. So if you're 
a female inmate and you need to be strip searched because you were engaged in a fight or you're going to the segregation unit and they want to make sure you don't have contraband on you or you're just coming in for the first time and they need to check to make sure you're not bringing in any contraband or something. Um, if you're being strip searched, you cannot have a male officer overseeing that strip search. You just can't. It's just not allowed. And it's deemed a violation of the Fourth Amendment for that male officer to be there. Uh, the Fourth Amendment is a prohibition against unreasonable searches and seizures. And while you know law enforcement personnel have much more latitude to search people in jail, there are limits on that. And one of those limits is male officers cannot be looking at female inmates while they're naked. Female officers can't be looking at male inmates while they're naked. That This is part of our Fourth Amendment jurisprudence for years and years and years and years. And so much of that, there's all kinds of literature in our Fourth Amendment jurisprudence that talks about what a, an awful intrusion upon a person's sense of privacy it is to unwillingly be subjected or exposed to viewing while you are using the restroom, while you're in a state of undress, when when you don't want someone to be looking at you in that way. That to preserve, it, it's a basic sort of aspect of human dignity that you should not be exposed to a member of the opposite sex when you're, you know, when you're changing and things like that and, without and, your consent. And it's not just some sort of puritanical, you know, Victorian notion of, of privacy and human dignity. This no. is actually a modern jurisprudential yes. notion of human dignity. Yeah, exactly. And, and and it's it's and this is stuff that's like advocated by very liberal like ACLU lawyers. And it's not, and it's not just bathrooms within public school. Everyone keeps talking about bathrooms, but they're not noting the fact that not only bathrooms are going to be opened up on the basis of quote gender identity or claimed gender identity because there are no safeguards to prevent someone who's mm-hmm. disingenuous from a boy who's disingenuous and claiming he's a girl. Um it's not just bathrooms. It's also locker rooms. It's shower areas. Um, so your 14-year-old daughter might may well wind up in a shower area with an 18-year-old adult male who's a high school senior. And I, I was thinking about this over the weekend, John. I, I read some more about this. I can't remember where it was I heard this, but this was also spelled out apparently in the order. Do you know what else that I've heard virtually nobody discussing? I mean, there's the showers, there's mm-hmm. the bathrooms. Overnight hotel accommodations. Oh, for like like a like a um, sports team going on the road for Imagine you're on a sports game? team and you have your 14-year-old daughter who plays soccer who gets put okay. in a bedroom with an 18-year-old biological male. Yeah. What if what if you yeah. have a transgender chaperone? Yeah. Yeah, and, and and any discrimination on that front puts the school at risk of violating Title IX and getting its federal money taken away. So, according to the Obama administration. According to the Obama administration. That, that's that's also in their directives. That if you press the question too hard, you're at risk of losing your federal federal funding Fo- or of uh, I, I, in folks, I, I'm sure there's no problem with that, yeah, right? Yeah, it, it's, it's insane. This idea that biological sex is this totally meaningless category that has no relation to anything that it's only what you think you are that matters it, it's it's completely insane and and we should not be cowed into thinking that we're bigots for saying this yep. no this we, is... we are recognizing an objective fact of reality in biology yeah well folks right. we'll be back uh, next week 
actually on the road from Washington, D.C. We're yes, going indeed. to record at least one episode with our friends from Alliance Defending Freedom, possibly also from Family Research Council. And Do we vi- have any enemies at those organizations well, that we might record with? We, we no. could try. <laughs> we see. We can, I'm sure we can make some if we try hard enough. Yeah, yeah. With but, our usual charm and wit. But folks, in the meantime, uh, I would encourage you go to our website, californiafamily.org, if you have a few extra pennies, nickels, dimes, quarters, or even dollars. Uh, <laughs> click the big red donate button in the upper right-hand corner and uh, yes. make a gift. All your gifts to CFC are tax deductible, and we sincerely appreciate them. We, of course, also appreciate your prayers as we continue to seek to spread the word about all the craziness coming out of California and hopefully educate you and your friends and family so you can be more informed as you're discussing these issues in the public square. Mm-hmm. So, for Life, Family, Liberty, I'm John Girardi. I am Jonathan Keller. Thank you so much. God bless. Goodbye.